You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Wednesday, June 16th. And people, I'm just gonna put it out there, man. I'm devastated. Right now, watching the news coming out of the NBA playoffs is so frustrating. Everybody is injured. Kyrie Irving is out with a twisted ankle. Kawhi Leonard could be out for the season with a busted knee. Chris Paul is out indefinitely for COVID protocols. Like, what the hell is happening? If the NBA loses any more stars, the playoffs are gonna be unwatchable. And I don't care what anyone says, stars matter, okay? Without them, it'll be like watching a Fast and the Furious movie starring the guy who does the oil change. And yes, I know he's important. The cars can't drive without him, but I wanna see Vin Diesel bench press a tanker while using his foot to drive a car. So I think the NBA needs to do everything it can to prevent any more stars from getting hurt. Please, NBA, do something. I don't care what it takes. Force feed them vitamins. Get a witch to cast a spell. Hell, just cover them in bubble wrap. Whatever it takes. And yeah, they'll be barely able to move, but at least they'll be on the court. I just want them on the court. I wanna see the dunks. I wanna see the shots. I wanna see KD do this. Protect KD. You can't have the pe- Anyway, on tonight's show, President Biden and Vladimir Putin have the most emo summits ever. The Capitol rioters are finding another way into Congress, and we'll find out the difference between black farms and white farms. And no, it's not just the seasoning. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. All right, let's kick things off with Joe Biden president of the United States and man whose bloodstream is 60% mint chip. All this week, Biden has been on a diplomacy tour of Europe. And today was his big summit meeting with Russian president and man strangling you with a wire right now, Vladimir Putin. So let's see how it all went down in another installment of Grandpa's Day Out. President Biden is en route back to the U.S. after his high-stakes summit today with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Both leaders agreed the tone of the meeting was positive. However, deep divisions remain. This is not a kumbaya moment, as he used to say back in the 60s in the United States, like, let's hug and love each other. Let me tell you, in life, there is no happiness. There is only the specter of happiness. God damn. What happened in there, people? Did they hold a bilateral meeting or watch mayor of East Town? Because Putin got dark, man. Although to be fair, I mean, Russians are a bleak people in general. In life, there is no happiness. That's basically how Russian soccer moms say, live, laugh, love. But there was some substance that came out of this summit. For instance, Biden says that he told Putin that certain critical infrastructure should be off limits to cyber attacks. And he even gave Putin a list of 16 specific things not to attack. And look, I get the idea of giving your enemies a red line that you warn them to never cross, but you gotta admit, it's gonna be a bad look when they go after the places that didn't make the cuts. Now, before everyone gets mad about what happened to St. Louis, I gave Putin a free pass on that, so (laughs) that's kind of on me. But in my defense, they were number 17. They were number 17, everybody. Moving on. Let's violate Florida law and talk about slavery. As many people now know, slavery in the US officially ended when the South surrendered at the end of the Civil War. But many enslaved people didn't find out for two more months. 
And now the celebration of that day, Juneteenth, is close to officially joining Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, and Casual Friday in the American holiday pantheon. Well, a major move in the Senate yesterday, unanimously passing a bill to establish Juneteenth as a federal holiday. The bill designates June 19th, 2021 as Juneteenth Independence Day. This is in recognition of June 19th, 1865, the date in which news of the end of slavery reached slaves in southwestern states. Wow. That's almost unbelievable. The Senate just voted for Juneteenth to be a national holiday by a huge bipartisan margin. And this, my friends, is why I love America's government. It has all these old Republicans who are like, we've got to stop talking about slavery. Quit talking so much about it all the time. But I'll take some time off for slavery. Hell yeah. But no, seriously, I know some people are surprised that the GOP was on board for this, but of course, Republican senators support Juneteenth. They love to celebrate the end of slavery. To them, that's the happy ending in the story of racism. But whatever the motivation, this is a nice moment for America. And yes, I've heard people point out that America seems much more willing to offer symbolic gestures instead of actual solutions like reforming the police or ending discrimination in the workplace. But I don't think symbolism is nothing, you know? Symbols are a big part of America and they can have real world effects. You know, the same way that celebrating Martin Luther King Day raises awareness of his legacy and his cause. Or how President's Day reminds Americans that they forgot to vote for president back in November. You better believe because it's a holiday, some frat boys are gonna be celebrating Juneteenth in a completely different way. Yo, happy Juneteenth, bro! You ready? Chug, 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 chug! Nobody knows the trouble I see! Nobody knows my... Chug, 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 chug! So yeah, maybe in some ways, it would have been better if Juneteenth had stayed one of those things that only black people know about, you know? Like Carmichael Cross Trainers, or DJ Amaretto, or Whiskey Cups. Don't worry, black people. I was just making a bunch of those things up to throw white people off the trail. You guys go celebrate Juneteenth while they're figuring this all out. Go now, go now. Yeah, those whiskey cups. And finally, some political news. Five months ago, you may remember that protesters stormed the US Capitol, hoping to overturn the election and pass a law that there should also be a show called Whitish. And now, one of the rioters is planning to return to the scene of the crime. A New Hampshire man facing charges for his part in the January 6th riot at the Capitol is now hoping to go back to Washington as an elected official. You might remember Riddle after seeing this photo. He's the man from Keene, New Hampshire, who admitted to entering the Capitol building on January 6th and chugging from a bottle of wine he found in a lawmaker's office. What does being at the riots do for your campaign? Tells him I show up, I'm gonna actually We'll keep my promises and, and um, make some changes. He says he's running against Democrat Annie Custer in the 2022 midterm elections. Custer is currently in her fifth term as a U.S. Congresswoman representing New Hampshire's second district. I thought Ann was a state representative. No. So a state rep is in the in the state house in Concord. Yeah, that's what Ann is. No, no, no. She's in Washington. Oh, well, I guess I got to run against that then. So Washington it is. Oh boy, there goes the media again, always with the gotcha questions. What are you running for? 
What state is that in? How many fingers am I holding up? Yeah, guys, I know it's shocking, but it turns out a guy who thought he could overturn the election by breaking into the Capitol and chugging wine doesn't have a super solid grasp of the political process. I mean, think about it. This dude is gonna run for Congress? He's a dangerous extremist who's completely unqualified and unprepared. So yeah, he'll fit right in. But that's not the point. Like, what's his first day even gonna be like? He's gonna show up at the office, smash his way in through the window, I'm back! Honestly though, there is a small part of me that hopes this guy does get elected because that means when the next insurrection happens, he'll see what it's like to be on the other side. Oh, I appreciate the irony now. But let's move on now to our top story. The $1.9 trillion relief bill that Joe Biden signed into law earlier this year had money for everything, from COVID vaccines, to stimulus checks, to a year's subscription to Biden's OnlyFans. And it also gave $4 billion in loan forgiveness to black farmers, which it turns out not everyone is happy about. Joe Biden sent billions of dollars to African-American farmers in this country purely because of how they look. Now that's illegal, it's immoral, it's completely divisive. It's not a bill for black farmers, it's a bill against white farmers. I don't think they understand their business one bit. Nobody asks you what race you are when you price right. fertilizer. White farmers need not apply by virtue of the color of their skin. The Democratic Party is becoming the party of reverse racism. Farmers are being denied aid solely because of their skin color. In this country, you do not punish people because they look a certain way, because their ancestors come from a certain place. Because if the government has the power to destroy a business because of how someone looks, what's next? Put someone in jail because of how they look? I mean, what if they make it illegal to look like a testicle that just escaped the scrotum, just as an example? But it isn't just Fox News gargoyles who are upset about this aid to black farmers. Last week, a federal judge blocked the aid from going into effect while a lawsuit from white farmers proceeds through the court system. And you might be hearing this story for the first time and wondering, wait, why should black farmers get special treatment? Are their cows the ones that make chocolate milk? Well, yes, but that's not why. The real reason is something we're gonna explore in another edition of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. When you picture a farmer in your head, what do you see? Close your eyes and think about it. Oh yeah. Probably a guy in overalls standing next to a tractor, chewing on a piece of hay, or vaping it if he's trying to quit. And let's be honest, oh, you can open your eyes now. And let's be honest, that farmer in your head is also probably a white guy. But you may be surprised to learn that there was a time in America when farming was as popular among black people as Telfer bags. By force and by choice, black people have long, deep connections to American farmland. After the fall of slavery, owning a piece of land that could be worked and farmed symbolized freedom. During Reconstruction, black folks saved their money. They worked together as a family, as a cooperative, and they bought land that allowed black families to build communities up to 16 million acres. At the peak of black farm ownership around 1920, maybe about 
15% of farmers were African-American. In a place where you could not vote, uh, one way that black folks were able to exert power was having some control over the land under their feet. That's right. Back in the day, 15% of all American farmers were black. And that's the kind of representation the Golden Globes can only dream of. And yes, it is true that there weren't a lot of other professions in the 1920s. You know, back then it was basically just farming, telegraph operator, and crash landing airplanes. But it makes sense that farming would be especially appealing to black people. Because owning anything was incredible for black people back then. Because don't forget, just a generation before that, black people were considered property. Property. I mean, imagine if your granddad was a TV and now you own a whole TV company. That's success. So if there were so many black farmers back in the day, what happened to them all? Did somebody finally tell them about sports? No, it turns out it was America's age-old friend, systemic racism. White folks recognized pretty early on that uh, one way to stop the civil rights movement, one way to, 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 to undercut it, was to get rid of land ownership. Over the last century, America's black farmers have lost more than 90% of their land because of systemic discrimination and a cycle of debt. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has a long history of discrimination. A study commissioned by the USDA found that loans to black male farmers were 25% lower than those given to white male farmers on average. For decades, the U.S. Department of Agriculture systematically favored white farmers by denying loans to black farmers. And discrimination was widespread at its local branches, which were largely run by all-white county committees. Many black farmers would come into the office and uh, the local officials would say, we don't have any money available. And when white farmers came in, they would process their loans less than 30 days. And for black farmers, it took 387 days on average. We'd fill out the papers, and then they would just take the paperwork and just throw it in the trash. Without the same access to funds, black farmers struggle to keep up with their white competitors and are often forced out of business. We're talking 177 to $230 billion that black farmers have lost because of active discrimination. That's right, for decades, the USDA actively discriminated against black farmers, giving them smaller loans than white farmers or outright refusing to give them loans altogether. And that's according to the USDA. So, I mean, that's like digging up your own tweets and canceling yourself. Go away, me. But that's how bad this discrimination was. And farming is hard enough on its own. I mean, think about it. You got pests, you got droughts, you got ghosts trying to get you to build a baseball field. The last thing you need is for the federal government to be up against you. And after decades of discrimination, black farmers had had enough. And so they took their complaints right to the top. Black farmers first picketed the Department of Agriculture in 1996. About 50 showed up with a pair of mules and a wagon to protest racial discrimination. Thousands had sent in complaints, but they found the civil rights office at the USDA had been closed for years, and boxes of their letters remained unopened. In 1999, thousands of black farmers settled a historic class action discrimination lawsuit against the USDA in a landmark case called Pigford versus Glickman. The government agreed to pay out more than $1 billion, with thousands of black farmers receiving up to $50,000 each. The vast majority never received a dime from the federal government. An overwhelming number of farmers were dubbed late filers by USDA. When their applications trickled into office inboxes, 
after a 180-day deadline. Tens of thousands of black farmers claim they did not receive proper notification of the settlement. For so many of them, it's been red tape and setbacks ever since. 11 years of splitting time between the fields and Capitol Hill, staging protests, even riding tractors through downtown D.C. to get attention from Congress. Okay, now this, this is how you protest. Riding tractors and mules into downtown D.C., not only are you bringing attention to your cause, but riding a mule is the one time a cop can't pull you over for a busted taillight. And they had to take some extreme measures. Because if anyone knows bullshit, it's farmers. And this was definitely some bullshit. I mean, the government basically admitted that it owed the farmers money, but then bogged them down in red tape. Let me tell you something, man. If you lose a lawsuit, the hearing should end with the bailiff marching you to the ATM to watch you withdraw that money. Oh, whoopsie. Looks like I forgot my pen. <laughs> oh, well. It's your birthday backwards, man. Just do it. Now, the government tried to fix things in 2011 by providing some more funding to black farmers. But unfortunately, it came too late for many of them, and it still fell far short of the economic losses that they had suffered at the hands of the USDA. So the next time you hear people talking about how black farmers are getting extra special treatment from the government, think about the treatment that they've been getting for the last 100 years. And you know, some of the people who are upset about this loan forgiveness, they might not even know that all this discrimination even happened, which I understand. And that's why we've decided to update the most famous song about farmers to better express the black farming experience. Old Black Donald had a farm, couldn't get a loan. Now the only farm he's got is on his mobile phone. Cause racism here and racism there. Here a racist, there a racist, everywhere a racist, racist. Old Black Donald had a farm, now he works at Coles. I'm on my break! All right, when we come back, I'll be talking to best-selling author and one of Oprah's favorites, Ashley C. Ford. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest tonight is New York Times best-selling author, Ashley C. Ford. She's here to talk about her new memoir about her childhood and the trauma of growing up with an incarcerated parent. Ashley C. Ford, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You are so many people's favorite writer. Some people know you from Twitter, but now many more people know you from your book that is a New York Times bestseller, Somebody's Daughter. And it's not just a New York Times bestseller, but it's a New York Times bestseller that has a really prominent fan by the name of Oprah Winfrey. What is more impressive, being published and being a New York Times bestseller or having Oprah as a fan of the book? Oh, you trying to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> honestly, and let's talk about just personally, okay? I knew who Oprah was before I knew what the New York Times was. Okay, and okay. so, gotta say, in my heart, it means a lot that Oprah's on board. I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, I understand why everybody's on board. You have the story where you share your journey as a young girl growing up in a Black family where your father was incarcerated for 30 years when you were still a baby at the age of one. And so you live your entire life without this man in the family, not even truly understanding how much the family suffers from this. You have a mother 
who was giving up everything to raise you and your family. And at the same time, you talk about how she was verbally abusive and what your relationship was like with her. How hard was it for you and why did you think it was necessary to explain to the, to the reader how tough her life was, what her experiences were, but then still be in a position to say, oh, but she didn't, you know, give me what I needed all the time as a child in an emotional sense. You know, when I set out to write this book, one of the things that was really important to me was that nobody was truly a hero or a villain oh. um, in the course of the book because I wanted to write something that was true and something that was real. And the truth of the matter is, you know, superhumans and superheroes are called super for a reason. And it's because they're separated from their humanity. And we are not. We're human beings 24-7 all the time, every day, which means our capacity for human good and human evil is always, always, always on the same spectrum. Nobody gets out of that. Nobody gets away from that. And I think that it's time, especially in communities like the community that I come from, where I was raised, that we can share complicated stories mm. about our lives and about each other and understand that it's not stripping us of our power or our agency or our humanity to do so. It is affirming it. It's validating it. Because the more we pretend that, you know, all good people have never done a bad thing and all bad people have never done a good thing, the more we are sowing a division within ourselves that is unsustainable. One of the more heart-wrenching examples of that in the stories is, is of your father's journey in your life. Your father was incarcerated for committing rape and he was guilty of it. And you had this really complicated relationship with him because here's this man who's your father, who's not just done something heinous, but also abandoned your family because of his actions. And yet you talk about your journey of having to learn how to forgive him. And I mean, how do you even begin to forgive somebody like that, especially when you haven't known them your entire life? You decide what you can forgive them for and what forgiveness means to you. I knew that I could not forgive my father for what he did to someone else. That's not my place. That's not my goal. That's not my intent. It, it, it can't be done in reality. But I knew that I could forgive him for how his actions had affected my life huh. and the life of the people I know and how that indirectly affected me and affects us all now. And, you know, my definition of forgiveness is pretty purely giving up on the idea that things could have been different, knowing that things are what they are, accepting reality. And I accept the reality of who my father is and what he's done. I accept the complexity of his humanity. And I had to do that, to be perfectly honest, so that I could accept mine. Like it's all in a circle, all the ways that I could have or, you know, in some people's minds should have punished him for his actions would have been punishing me, too. Um, and I don't deserve that. I'm worthy of more than that. A lot of us have been taught to be ashamed of the things that we've experienced in life that have happened within our families. And so we create a facade and everyone's having a facade. And then every time a moment or a, or a reality becomes exposed, we then shame the person or that person is ashamed when in fact 
many people are experiencing similar things. How did that heal you and how do you think we can begin to heal as a society by addressing these things more openly? Well, you know, the first thing that I would say really quickly is that shame thrives when it's alone. That's why people attempt to isolate you in your shame. That's why they try to bring a group and say, none of us believe you, or all of us believe this around you, or all of the, all of us have decided that you are no longer part of whatever, so that they can stand together and make you feel alone. You are not alone. You're never alone because there are no emotions or experiences that you get as a human being that no other human being in the world has access to, except for the experience of your consciousness and your mind. But everything else you've been through, everything else you feel, that human emotional spectrum, we all have it. We all get it. There's nothing wrong with you for having feelings about something that happened to you. And secondly, the thing I would say is that none of us, absolutely none of us are going to be okay until we can talk about what hurts. So the sooner we start having those conversations, the better, because we only get so much time. And I want us to be able to spend it well together, knowing that we're not alone. Well, I'll tell you this, anyone who reads the book, who has lived a life, will relate to your life in some way, shape or form. Ashley C. Ford, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And hopefully I'll see you again with the next book that talks about the post-therapy and the joy that you now experience in your world. I'm working on it. Thank you. Don't forget, Ashley's book, Somebody's Daughter, is available right now. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking to the host of one of the hottest new shows on the scene, Sam J. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is the Emmy-nominated writer and comedian, Sam J. She's here to talk about her brand new HBO series, Pause. Sam J., Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Hey, man, what's up? Um, it, it's really an honor to have you here because there are, there are many comedians who I appreciate as being funny, but there are a few comedians who I envy when I watch their stuff. And it's always comedians where I go like, ah, I could have never thought of that. I could have never done that. Where'd you even get that idea? You've always been one of those comedians. I mean, it's probably the reason Netflix said, we want you to make a special. It's probably one of the reasons SNL said, we want you to come on the show and write. And it's probably one of the reasons that HBO Max said, we want you to make a show unlike any other, which is exactly what you did. Pause with Sam J. First of all, let's, let's start with the title, Pause. I mean, it seems like the antithesis of what you want a show to be about because it seems like it has so much thrust. So why pause with Sam J? Oh, uh, well, I thought about it. And when we were kind of coming up with names, we were throwing a bunch of stuff at a wall and pause just seemed to be two things. I thought it was a funny little double entendre on how it's kind of used to say like, chill out on gay stuff and especially the black community. And I thought that was like a little cheeky way to play with that. And then the other side of it was, I feel like that's what the show is asking people to do. I think it's asking people to take a beat and hear another perspective and take a beat and consider another angle than just your own. And so I feel like it was kind of serving two purposes in, in that way. What's also cool about the show is that it genuinely feels like you. It just feels like your hangout. I mean, you've got you've got people drinking, you've got mu music playing in the background, you know, you've, you've got clouds of smoke everywhere, you know, people are speaking freely doing it. It almost feels like you tricked HBO into paying for you to throw parties with your friends. That's what it really feels like, you know? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> it's a little bit of that. Um, 
I know what we were coming up with it. We were like, yeah, this is like gonna the hang is good, but we have to like put some some, some substantial things into it, or it will feel like we just tricked HBO into paying us to hang out. And so um it is a little bit of that though, but I do think that hangs are where you get honesty. You know what I mean? I feel like whenever I'm kicking it, I'm not getting these like pre-packaged uh, Twitter answers or yes. even, you know, pre-staged ideas of what the world is. I think when you're kicking it and you're just hanging, people are not afraid to maybe say something they're not necessarily supposed to say because everybody's guards down. But I think something that the show does well is it truly is a hang with my friends. Everybody who comes to the house is somebody I know. It's not just people we're picking like out of the sky. And I right. think it it sets up a level of like comfortability, you know? And um, I've always kind of just been a person that's open to other people's ideas and opinions. And so I think it's easy for people to get into the flow of the party and just have a good time. And because there is no ill intent in the show, there is no gotcha moment, even in the interviews that are separate from the party, I think people are more willing to just be honest because everyone's kind of being honest. So it's not like any particular person's being called out. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I remember watching the first episode and I was like, okay, either Sam and these people are amazing actors or this is actually like a slice of her life. Even the way you speak, it doesn't seem like it's scripted in any way. It seems like there's a structure, but it doesn't seem like it's scripted out. Uh, you know, like for instance, like you're throwing out the N word and that's just how you speak. And I, I remember talking to um, a friend of mine who's an older comedian, older black man. And I was like, have you seen the show? It's amazing. He's like, man, he's like, I love that show, man. Sam's one of the funniest people I've ever seen. He's like, but boy, she uses the N word. Man, she says that N word. Yeah, for sure. And it, it is how I actually speak, you know? And I did think about it. Of course, I, I knew there was going to be some criticism behind it. And I had to consider, like, do I want to try to change my speech right. for the show? And I actually made a really strong decision not to do that because I felt like, one, I speak like how the people that I came up with, the people from my neighborhood that I grew, grew up with, my friends, we all speak this way. And I didn't want to sh- act like we did. And I also didn't want to present something to the world that said, if someone speaks this way, then they're not intelligent or you shouldn't listen to their opinion or or take in consideration what they're saying. You know what I mean? And I also didn't want to put on a different suit and have my friends and people I come up with feel like, yo, in order to make it, I can't be me. I got to be some other version of myself. You know what I mean? But I also do like, I get the criticism and especially when I get it from older black people, I I truly do understand it and I respect it. And I was really thinking like, what, how can I kind of fix this? Because I didn't want to just come off as someone who's just disrespectful, you know? And so I decided that um, the last episode, we're going to count up all the N-words and I'm going to give $50. (laughs) I'm going to give $50 to a a charity, an LGBTQ uh, charity for Black people. Well, I feel like, I mean, that's that's the ultimate solution to any, you go like, someone goes like, I use the N-word a lot. Well, every time I use it, I will be donating charity. And now it's just like, yeah, well, now people are almost cheering for you. Like, I'm going to be sitting at home like, yes, another one. Come on, Sam, you can do it. Another one, Sam, another one, do it. Yeah, it's an N-word-a-thon, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I think maybe that's what I love about your show, is that you yourself have had to break out of the one label that people want to give you. They just go like, oh, you are a black woman, so that means you have to be this. And they go like, oh, no, you you are lesbian, so you have to be this, and et cetera, et cetera. And I, to be honest, in my humble opinion, I think that's what makes the show and everything that you do so fantastic. So uh, congratulations. I can't wait to see the final episode. 
because I want to see how much money gets donated. I want to count up all the N-words. And uh, thank you so much. I hope we see season two, season three, season four, and it just keeps on going. And hopefully I see you again on the show. Man, thank you so much for having me. This was really cool. I appreciate you, Sam. Take care. Don't forget, Pause with Sam J is now streaming on HBO Max. And new episodes air Fridays on HBO. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. All right, people, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, June is Pride Month. So please consider supporting an organization called The Trevor Project. It's the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ plus young people. Now, your support will help them offer LGBTQ plus youth free, confidential, and 24-7 lifeline chat and text crisis services. So if you are able to help in any way, please go to the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, the best gift for your black friend this Juneteenth is respect and money. Black people take Venmo. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. And stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.